0: My name's Steve Wallen, I'm the campus pastor here, and I promise I haven't been slacking the last few weeks. Uh, The way this series is kind of arranged, many of you know, we're one church in two locations, and we have... um Typically, we do the same message at both campuses all weekend, but or, or both uh, on Sunday. But this summer, during this series, we've done something a little different, and we've let each teacher kind of pick a person from the Bible, a human of the Bible, and take it to both campuses. And so, the last two weeks, because of the way the schedule worked out, I've actually been at our Noblesville campus uh, teaching there. And I promise it's not because Paul's not coming back from a sabbatical, because he is. Our lead pastor's on sabbatical. He'll be back here in two weeks. In fact, I think he'll be here, I heard, for our five-year anniversary, so that'll be cool. Um, but anyway, I've just had to teach two weeks in Noblesville, and I'm back here, and it's good to be back with you. It's good to see so many of you here uh, that uh, some have, we haven't seen for a while. We know a lot of people have been gone all summer, and so welcome back. My name's Steve. I'm glad to be here with you. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're going to kind of cover a lot of ground today, but Acts chapter 9 is where the core of our story is. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one of these on the floor around you, and it's page 765 in this Bible. How many of you are familiar with the name Charles Colson, Chuck Colson? If you know that name, raise your hand. Okay, uh, quite a few of you. Chuck Colson was born in 1931 in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, he attended Brown University, good old uh, East Coast liberal arts school, before enrolling in the Marine Corps. And then after he got out of the Marines, he went to George Washington University, got his law degree, started working as a lawyer, and eventually found his way into the law office of Massachusetts Senator Leverett Saltonstall. Uh, Senator Saltonstall was uh, one of the two senators from Massachusetts. Colson worked for him for a while, um, and there he got to meet a man who was then the vice president of the United States, a man by the name of Richard Nixon. Uh, Nixon was the vice president under Eisenhower. Uh, Colson got to meet him. He was he was captivated by Richard Nixon. And then when Nixon ran for president in 1960 against John Kennedy, he lost. And usually, when you lose a presidential election, your career is kind of over. Your career in politics is done. But Colson was convinced that Nixon could still win, and so he actually wrote an article about that. And Richard Nixon was so encouraged by this article that Chuck Colson wrote, he invited him to come out and meet with him, and then he invited him to join his campaign staff in 1968 when he ran for re-election. And Nixon won, obviously, and became president of the United States. And while working for the president, Chuck Colson gained a reputation as the guy who. Um, The guy who would do things that others weren't willing to do, if you know what I mean. Uh, Some people called him a loose cannon, but many on the staff called him the hatchet man for the president. In fact, Colson himself once said in a staff meeting, I would walk over my own grandmother in order to win this election. That's the kind of guy we're talking about here, okay? Okay. But then Watergate happened. Some guys with uh, ties to the president broke into the Democratic headquarters uh, at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. They were accused of and eventually convicted of. Um, stealing some records, doing some things that would help them uh, win the election. And while Colson wasn't a part of that group that did that, he did hire all the guys that did, and so he wasn't directly tied. But he was kind of on the periphery. He was uh, he was uh, uh, encapsulated in that group, and so. But then something else happened while Watergate was going on. Something else was happening in Colson's life. He started meeting with this guy named Tom Phillips. Uh, Phillips was the CEO of Raytheon. Raytheon's a big defense contractor, does a lot of government work, and Tom Phillips wasn't talking to him about defense contracts, although he could have been. He was talking to him about this book that he was reading called The Case for Christ. And Tom Phillips started sharing quotes from this book, The Case for Christ, with Chuck Colson. And Colson was, uh, was uh, really interested in it, and he started reading the book. And through these conversations with Tom Phillips and, converse- and through the book, The Case for Christ, Chuck Colson became a Christian. Now, when that happened, uh, there was a lot of skepticism around that. Because how could a guy like Chuck Colson become a Christian? It's kind of like today when you hear on the news, if you read this week, that Justin Bieber has kind of recommitted himself to his Christian faith. And you go, "Mm, really? So people were like that with Colson. I mean, how can the president's hatchet man really become a Christian? Even uh, Christians in Washington, guys in the Senate and the House, were doubting whether this guy could actually be converted to Christ. But then they were convinced when Chuck Colson was not charged with a crime, but he went to the prosecutor and said, you know what? I was involved Uh, Here's a crime that you could charge me with, and he brought charges to the prosecutor, and then pled guilty and spent seven months in prison before getting off for good behavior. This is the this is the kind of change that he had in his life. The the hatchet man becomes the guy who brings charges to the prosecutor and says, Hey, why don't you charge me with this? Coulson was uh, spent seven months in prison, and it was only a short time, seven months, but he was so moved by what he saw in prison and by what he read in Scripture about how we should treat prisoners that he dedicated the rest of his life to a ministry he started called Prison Fellowship. It's now the largest prison ministry in the world. Through that ministry, through Prison Fellowship, 26,000 inmates a week now take prison fellowship classes while incarcerated. Uh, Over 300,000 children last year whose parents, mothers or fathers were incarcerated received Christmas gifts through their Angel Tree program. And all this from a man who became famous as the president's hatchet man. Well, Chuck Colson's life bears an eerie parallel to the man that I want to talk about today as we're continuing on our series called Humans of the Bible. We're looking at various people from the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and and telling their stories and reminding ourselves that these aren't characters in a book, that they're real people who led real lives. They have real stories, and their stories can relate to our stories. And the the human of the Bible I want to talk about today is a guy named Paul. Uh, And Paul, uh, we know him also as Saul. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But Paul, his story bears a remarkable resemblance to Chuck Colson, even though he predates him by about 2,000 years. Um, And he really started, Paul did, started his career as the hatchet man for the Jewish ruling council. But before we talk about that history, let's talk about why Paul is such an influential figure in our faith. He uh, was a prolific church planner. Planted several churches around Europe and Asia Minor. In fact, as far as we can tell, he was the most prolific church planner outside of Jerusalem. What was happening is that there are a lot of the apostles in this era right after Jesus ascended into heaven, an era they call the apostolic era. A lot of the disciples were planting churches in Jerusalem because they were mostly Hebrew or Israelite Israelite believers. Um, but Paul went outside of Jerusalem and started planning churches in the surrounding areas, probably the most prolific church planner from that era. Uh, he also wrote many letters to these churches, which we now have preserved as books in the Bible. In fact, there's about half of the New Testament that is um, attributed to Paul's authorship, 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. Uh, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus and Philemon, all attributed to Paul's authorship. And in fact, because of that, much of our theology that we have today, what we believe and think about salvation and transformation and justification and church government and church discipline and spiritual gifts, a lot of that comes from Paul's writings. A lot of it comes from the apostle Paul. In fact, he's so influential, he's sometimes called the second founder of Christianity. With Jesus being the first. Pretty high praise, right? This is a guy who started his life as a hatchet man for the Jewish ruling council. You may know the man that we know as the Apostle Paul had a pretty rocky start in ministry, pretty rocky start in scripture. And uh, this is the first place we see Paul. A couple of weeks ago, Josh Tandy was here. He talked about Stephen, uh, one of the apostles, Stephen, who uh, was stoned. For his faith, he was killed for his faith. And this is the first place we see Saul, a man we'll know as Saul of, Saul of Tarsus that we also know as Paul in scripture. Uh, we see this in Acts 8.1, it says this, and Saul approved of their killing him, uh, of Stephen. That was his, his start. Now, what on earth, I wanna ask, what on earth could take a man who started his career as an enemy of Christians and turn him into the, one of the most influential Christians in history? What on earth could do that? I would argue nothing on earth. Could do that, but something did, and so let's start Saul's story near the beginning and see what happens. Acts 9, verse 1 says, This meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That is an inauspicious start for someone who's going to become a Christian. In fact, maybe that's your story, or maybe you've, you've had that in your background that I, I hated Christians. I didn't believe in, uh, that's part of my story. Some of you have heard that before, but that's not a great place to start. But that's, that's Paul's story. That's who he is. He was breathing out murderous disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, uh, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, just a little background on this. Damascus is about 130 miles from where uh, Saul lived in Jerusalem. Even today, it's about a five-hour car ride if you were to drive from Jerusalem to Damascus, which you wouldn't want to do because it's in Syria, and Syria is in a civil war. I don't know if you watch the news, but you probably don't want to make that drive, and I don't think they'd welcome anybody from Israel uh, coming that way. But if you could, if you could do all that, it's still five hours by car. So by foot... It's quite a long adventure, right? And so, why is Saul doing this? Well, he's to go find people who belong to the way. They weren't called Christians at the time. People who followed Jesus were known as the way. And it's because Jesus was so well known for saying, "I am the way, and the true, and the life, the truth, and the life." And so, that's what they called people who followed Jesus. They were the way. And what was happening was that this movement started in Jerusalem. But people in Jerusalem were being persecuted. The church was being persecuted. So people started to flee. You know, when things like the stoning of Stephen happened, people start to flee outside uh, Jerusalem and go to the surrounding areas and people were going to Damascus. And and, and Saul said, it's not enough that we get rid of all the Christians here. We don't want this thing to spread. It's kind of like a disease. So he decides on his own, he takes the initiative and he goes to the high priest and says, I want to go to Damascus and stomp this thing out. If there are people who have left here and gone to Damascus, this is the zeal that Saul had for getting rid of the Christians, all right? And and so what's gonna happen is this zeal is gonna serve him well when he becomes a Christian, all right? So let's go on, verse three. As he neared Damascus on his journey, this is a pivotal moment in, in Paul's life, the pivotal moment in Paul's life. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Now, I want you to notice that Saul doesn't know who's speaking to him, but he knows he's Lord. That's what he calls him. He calls him Lord, and that's with a capital L, so it's not like just somebody who's in charge. It is somebody who is large and in charge. It's the man. He knows he's talking to the man, and he says, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, uh, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, Saul probably would have argued with Jesus. I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting your followers. But Jesus says, you mess with them, you mess with me. And still today, Jesus says, you mess with them, you mess with my people, you mess with me. You know, Jesus is on their side. All right? And so he says, he says, you're persecuting me. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. Now, I want you to see something that's really critical here. Notice the obedience in Saul. He's just met Jesus. He's just encountered Jesus, and yet he's willing to obey. And this is really critical. Um, Paul could have chosen to run away. And, in fact, many of us would. When something like this happens, when uh, something happens, he's blinded. You know, when something happens to us and we don't understand why it happens, our circumstances change, something bad happens to us. Isn't our propensity sometimes to run from God? Like we go hide, we stay away from church, we don't read his word, we we don't pray, we stop praying because things aren't good in our lives. And so God must not be present. So why would we worship him? Why would we read his word? Why would we pray to him? Let's just run away. Why would we go to church? We're not living in a way that shows that we're Christians. So why would I come to church? I'm just going to run the other way. Don't we do that so often? But look what Paul did. He obeyed. It drove him to obedience. And what we're going to see is time and time again, whenever Paul encounters trouble, it drives him closer to God, not further away. Now, this isn't the only time this happened. This is uh, something that's so important for us to see in Paul is the same hardheadedness that caused him to be a persecutor of Christians, that God's going to use that in an incredible way. Um, Once he becomes a Christian, the same thing that God's going to use to make him so influential in the church. Now, Paul faced an awful lot of hardship in his life, but none of it came before he became a Christian. And this is important to understand for us today, too, because sometimes we think that if we start to follow Jesus, our life's going to be better. It's going to be easier. It's going to be more fun. uh, We're not going to face as many problems. But Paul never faced problems until he encountered Jesus. Oh, thanks for the encouragement, Steve. That's great. Yeah. But what, look at this. He, he talked about this in 2 Corinthians 11. He said this. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. You should know that the, uh, the, the Jews believe that if you gave somebody 40 lashes, it was humiliating. So to punish somebody uh, that was a Jewish person, they would give them only 39 because that wasn't humiliating. So this is what he got that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Uh, Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? That life is not the kind of life that we generally pursue, but that was Paul's lot that he was given when he became a follower of Jesus. Now, I think this is uh, really critical to understand because I've heard it said, uh, I've heard this phrase, maybe you've heard this if you've been around church for a while, the safest place to be is where? Inside the will of God. Have you heard that? Safest place to be is inside of the will of God. And i got to tell you that if anybody was inside the will of God, outside of Jesus, it was Paul, when he's doing all this ministry. And I think for your eternity, that's absolutely true. The safest place to be is inside the will of God. And God's not gonna let you down. He's not gonna desert you. He's not gonna abandon you. But that does not mean we won't face hardship. And Paul faced that again and again and again. If anybody was inside the will of God, it was Paul. But look at what he had to, he had to bear. And none of that happened until he became an, a Christian. But I'm just being honest with you, okay? Even with Jesus, life isn't always a bed of roses, in Paul's case, though, you need to see that every one of these encounters that he had drove him closer to Christ, not further away. It drove him to God. Uh, isn't it more likely for a lot of us that when times get tough, we run away? But Paul ran to God. And then look what else happened to Paul. I love this. I love this. And uh, if you go down just a few verses, 2 Corinthians eleven thirty-two. 32. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from the window in a wall and slipped through his hands. He's like Jason Bourne. He's like, everybody in the city is looking for this guy. And what happens? He somehow befriends somebody who's got a house on the wall. He goes up in their house, slips out the window, gets them to lower them down in a basket. Man, I want that to be part of my story someday. Now, something we need to think about. Um, Paul, in his early years, he was convinced that what he was doing when he was persecuting Christians, when he was approving of their killing, that, that he was doing that for God. He was doing that as a favor For God, on behalf of God, he's chasing these guys down, trying to keep the way from spreading. Like, I'm doing this for you, Lord. But then once he's corrected, right, once he's confronted with Jesus, something changes in his life. Once he's he's confronted that that's not the right way to go, what happens? Paul turns around and walks the other way. It's a very visual representation of the word repentance. When we talk about repent, repent means to turn around. So Paul's walking this way, and Jesus confronts him. What's he do? He turns around and goes back the other way. He walks back to a new life, right? And so um, I've heard it said that an encounter like Jesus is a bit like an encounter with a dump truck, now I'll tell you what I mean by that. Let's just say that Danielle's up here giving the announcements and she's um, furiously scanning the room to see where I am because she doesn't see me. And she's nervous that she's going to have to preach the sermon, uh, which she could do because my notes are right here. She could do that, but it's not her thing, right? And so she's scanning the room and uh, she says something about the offering and you guys start clapping. And right as you start clapping, I burst in through those back doors and I run up to the stage. I'm completely out of breath. And I'm like, okay, just give me a minute. I got to tell you what happened. So I was on my way here. And I was coming down 31 and I got a flat tire. And so I got out of my car, I got my spare, I got my jack, I jacked the car up and I took the old tire off and then um, I got my spare out and it rolled away from me and it rolled out into the street onto 31. And I went to go get it and I picked up my spare and I looked up and there was a dump truck barreling at me at 60 miles an hour and it ran me over. And I got up and I put my spare tire on my car (laughs) and I drove the rest of the way to work. What are you going to think? You're going to think, that guy's crazy, right? Or he's lying to us. Why? Because you can't have an encounter with a dump truck and not be changed. An encounter with Jesus is the same way. You can't encounter the real Jesus and not be changed. It's going to change your life. It's going to change the way you look. It's going to change the way you act. It's going to change the things you do. Paul had a real encounter with the real Jesus, and it changed his life. So let's summarize what happened next. Uh, God says, let's, thank you. Uh, God says, um, so Saul, go to this house. I'll show you. It's on Straight Street. And there you're going to meet a man named Ananias. And Ananias will tell you what to do. And then God goes to Ananias and he says, uh, there's a guy that's coming. I want you to go to this house on Straight Street. And I want you to meet a man named Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias is like, because Ananias is a Christian and he knows Saul's reputation. He's probably like, um, Saul of Tarsus, I know that name. I don't think I need to go find him. I think he's coming looking for me. But God says, no, he's going to be my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Ananias goes to the house on Straight Street to meet Saul. And Saul gets there, and uh, they get together. Ananias lays hands on him, and Saul is healed. The Bible says that scales fall off his eyes. He's able to see. He gets something to eat because, you know, you're not you when you're hungry. And... um, and then, he, and then he gets baptized. And then here's what happens next, verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. When did he begin to preach? At once he began to preach in the synagogues. He was baptized and he began to preach. He was baptized and he began to preach. Time after time we see in scripture that your baptism is the start of your ministry. Like we see that with Saul here. He was baptized and then it, at once he began to preach. We see that with Jesus. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. Jesus was baptized and it started his ministry time after time. We see some, some of us, sometimes we wait so long for baptism. I want to wait till I'm ready. I want to wait and make sure that my life's really changed. I want to make sure that something's really, it's really taking, like it's really happening. And, and God says, no, baptism is the start of your journey. Like as soon as you decide, I'm going to follow Jesus, you're baptized. You can do that on September 10th, by the way, if you want to be a part of that. Um, And so that's what happens. He gets up and he starts to preach at once. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the guy that raised all that havoc back in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And didn't he come here to take prisoners for the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, this is probably a good time to talk about the name that we know Paul as Saul, and Paul, we know him as Saul of Tarsus and the Apostle Paul. And you may have heard it said that, that God changed Paul's name uh, when he encountered Jesus. But that's not exactly what happened. Uh, see, Paul occupies unique real estate in this era, in this area, because he was both a Jewish man and a citizen of the Roman Empire. And so as such, he would have had a Hebrew name, which would have been his given name by his parents. He was Saul, Saul is uh, probably named after King Saul from the Old Testament. And then he would have had a Greek name because Greek was kind of the world language. And if you're a citizen of the Roman Empire, you're going to speak uh, the world languages. So like just today, if you were to go to, on a mission trip or you were to go uh, someplace overseas on business, and um, you, meet, you know the most educated people in almost any country speak English. Why? Not, not because Americans speak it, but because it's kind of become the world language, right? And Greek was kind of the world language at the time. So if you're a citizen of the Roman Empire, you're going to speak and write in Greek. Paul was a very educated man. And so he would have had a a Greek name too, the name Paul. And when God told him, you're going to be my instrument to go reach the Gentiles, I believe that Paul decided to use his Greek name to go reach people outside of Israel because a man named Saul would have been immediately identifiable as a Hebrew person and probably would have had less respect in the Roman Empire and certainly in the rest of the world. And as a man named Paul, which was also his name, he would have been known as more of a world citizen. And Paul talked about this. He he said in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, he said, I have become all things to all people so that by all means, all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Paul just decided, hey, you know, it's worth it for me to go by my Greek name, to go by the name Paul so that people outside of Jerusalem will take me seriously. And so my question for you today, Christians, is like, what are you willing to do? to make sure people hear Christ from you? Are you willing to invest in others? And that's what Paul did. He dedicated the rest of his life to investing in the world outside of Jerusalem. Are you willing to tell your story? We're gonna see Saul do that, Paul do that in just a moment. All right, are you willing to share the gospel? Do you know how? I mean, every letter Paul wrote, we'd see him sharing the gospel of Jesus. Are, are you willing to change your priorities? You know, if you have that encounter with a dump truck, your priorities are gonna change. That's what we see with Paul. Are you willing to change how you spend your money? Are you willing to face persecution? That's what his price was. Ours is more like people might make fun of us. That's our persecution in today's society. But you know what? In 100 years from now, it's not, we're not going to care what people think. I firmly believe that someday when we come face-to-face with Jesus, and by the way, you do know that someday you'll come face-to-face with Jesus whether you're a believer or not a believer, we're gonna come face to face with Jesus. And I think we're gonna to have to answer for our lives. And one of the questions that he's gonna ask is, what did you do to help others come to know me? And some of you are gonna have really great long stories and it's gonna take you a long time. And you're gonna have all this face time with Jesus talking about the great things that you got to see in your life. And some of us um, may get a little nervous about that question. And so Paul became all things to all people so that by any means necessary, some could be saved from destruction. Let's look at how he does this. I want to learn from this because um, Paul uses a couple things that maybe we don't always use. Um, He uses his story. He uses his background. He uses it to teach and instruct other people. And then we'll talk about how we can learn from that, okay? So uh, this is just one example of where Paul tells his story to one of his churches. In Galatians 1, 13, he says this, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Jerusalem, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Now remember, he's writing this letter to the church of God. You've heard of my previous way and how I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age uh, among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. So Paul's saying, hey, you've probably heard that I used to persecute people like you. Now, we only see this written, but we know from his letters that Paul had a great sense of humor. And I could only imagine what he would say to them face to face if he showed up there and just talking to one of the Christians and go, you know, I used to kill guys like you. Maybe I still would. Boom. You know, they're like, ah. Can just imagine, that's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, this is the person I used to be. He's not ashamed of his past. I mean, he's probably not proud of the person he once was, but he knows it's part of his story. And for some of us, our past is part of our story. We can't change our past. All right, I, I see way too many people spending way too much time trying to change the past, trying to rewrite the past. You can't change your past. You can change your future. But you can't change your past. Now, your past doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have any say about where you're going in the future. Your past is behind you. But you can use that story to tell your story. He, he, Paul's not ashamed of it, you know. So he reminds him what he was like, but then he's not boasting about how he's changed right? He's not going to talk about how he's changed. He, he knows what happened to cause his transformation. He says a couple of verses before that in Galatians 1.11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. He says, I received the gospel from Christ and that's what changed me. Like Jesus appeared to me and showed me this and that's what changed my life. I didn't change my life. And so here's where we're different from Paul. We, we don't, We don't like to talk about our past. Um, Maybe we're ashamed of who we were. Uh, Maybe we think it takes away credibility. Like if the Christians knew who I used to be, why would they listen to me? Because I used to do things that I'm not really proud of. Uh, Maybe we think it it takes away credibility from us. Um, Honestly, maybe we're afraid that we're still a little bit like that. Like that if I talk about it, that people are going to know what I still struggle with. Um, But we shouldn't run from our past. Now, Like I said, it can't define you but you can use it to help people. In fact, this is what I want you to kind of take away from today. You can write this in your notes if you you want. Your past is someone else's present. Your past is someone else's present. What I mean by that is if I were to tell you a story about what I used to be like, some of you sitting here today would say, oh, that kind of sounds like me now. And if you were to tell me a story of what you used to be like, somebody in this room would probably say, oh, that sounds a lot like me now. And the fact that the Lord has brought you a long way from that can give hope for their future. That God can use your past to give somebody who's there now hope for their future. That if you can change, they can change. If Paul can change, I can change. And if I can change, you can change. You know, if I used to be like this, you're like that now. But now, look, I'm like this And you can be like that too. Now, your transformation story is really, really important. Now, what does this mean? Okay, what does it mean that that your past is someone else's present, and God can use that to give them hope for the future? How how does that all work? Well, first of all, I want you to understand this. Uh, Transformation is a long process. It's a long process. When we encounter Christ for the first time, there are things in us that change immediately. But then there's this whole process where God uses the Holy Spirit, He uses uh, obedience, he uses his word, he uses our life circumstances, and he uses other people to help change us and mold us to shape us into the form of Christ. It happens over time, not all at once. It's a process uh, the Bible calls sanctification. That's a long word that we only hear in church, right? But what it means is that we are being changed, we are being molded from the inside out, being made into the image of Jesus. And uh, it will never be finished, this side of heaven. We will never be perfect this side of heaven, but God is renewing us day by day. He is making us holy uh, slowly. Because it's slow, we don't always recognize it's happening. It's kind of like if you're trying to lose weight and every morning you get up and look in the mirror and you go, nope, no change. Nope, no change. Nope, no change. And then you see somebody who you haven't seen in like a year and they're like, man, you've lost a ton of weight. And you're like, oh, thank you, I guess, you know? Because like, what, I used to weigh a ton and now I don't weigh a ton anymore? Is that what you're saying? But they can see, sometimes other people see the transformation much better than we can see it, right? Because we're living in it day by day, but because it's little by little, little by little, little by little, we're being conformed into the image of Jesus. And what the Lord has done in us over time can be an encouragement to somebody else. Now, so one reason... um, that sometimes we don't like sharing our faith is we don't feel worthy. We don't see that change. We don't see that it's happened. We don't feel like we're a good example to hold up. I, I, I do that. I don't share sometimes because I don't feel like I'm a very good example to hold up. And you know what? I'm right. I'm not a good example. And you're not a good example. We should never have people look at us as evidence or as, as, uh, as the changers. Like, look at how I've changed my life. We shouldn't do that. Paul, Paul says it this way in Galatians six fourteen. He says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, hey, remember, I'm gonna tell you this story about who I used to be and who I am now, but I want you to know it came from Jesus, not from me. He's the one that did all the work, not me. But because he did all the work, he can do all the work in you too. And that's the way that Paul tells his story. And your story is important. Your transformation story is important. Let me tell you why. Sometimes we think about our testimony and we think about how, and I'm talking to Christians now. So if you're not a Christian, um, don't listen for a minute. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to share some of our secrets of how we're going to get you to become a Christian someday. But if you're a Christian, here's what happens. We think about our testimony as the moment that we accept Jesus. On August 6th, 1993, I sat in a, a church and I heard this preacher preach on and my life was different after that. And I, some of you have that kind of story. But I got to tell you, for me, it's different. It's a process. Even my becoming a Christian is a process. If you ask me when I became a Christian, I'll say sometime between 1998 and 2001. I'm not quite sure when. But in that process, it's happened. But that's, not, that's okay because that's not our whole testimony. Our testimony is, what were you like before? What did God do in you during that process? And what has God done in you since then? Like that's all part of your testimony. That's all part of your transformation story. And it's so important because this, We, we sometimes forget this part, the here's what I was before because we're afraid of it. But here's the thing, broken people, we're all broken people. Broken people being saved are the best evidence of God's grace. Broken people who've been saved are the best evidence of God's grace. I know you're not perfect, I know God's not finished with you yet, but please don't discount how far you've come. God has brought you, you you, you may have a long way to go, but you've come a long way, baby, by God's grace. And he's going to continue to do that work in you uh, until the day that Christ comes back, right? But, But still, do not discount the work, if you're a Christian, do not discount the work that God has done in you from the time you first encountered him until now. Dr. Henry Cloud says it this way. He says, whatever is happening today is only one scene in a long movie. Don't treat it like it's the whole story. Keep writing the story. So here's what I wanna leave you with today. Um, I wanna leave you with a verse that uh, Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Philippi, book called Philippians. He could have just as easily written it when he was faced down on the road to Damascus blind. Uh, He could have just as easily written it when when he was shipwrecked or when he was being flogged, or whether he was hungry, or thirsty, or cold, or naked. And you can just imagine that he was writing it for you. Like, if you're disappointed in how far you've come, uh, if you don't always see the work that God's doing inside of you, if you seem to take two steps forward in your faith and then take one step back, and you don't feel like you're getting any traction, and you don't know that, that that transformation process is really taking, here's what I feel like God wants to say to you today through the Apostle Paul. Philippians 1.6, he says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying, God is the one that began this work and God is faithful and he's gonna continue it until you're done. When you have confidence that you're changing, you're not confident in you. You're not confident in your own abilities. You're confident in God, that the God that changed Paul can change me. When you're not confident in the fact that that transformation is happening, what you're saying is, oh, yeah, I believe that God's powerful enough to change Paul, but he can't change me. But when you are confident, Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It's God that does the work of sanctification, not us. We, we just got to move out of the way. We got to get our flesh out of the way, get our desires out of the way, and let Him work. And then we can be confident that the God who began that work in you will complete it. I want to close by praying for us. And we, we usually pray to close our services. But, um, you know, we, we pray in all kinds of ways as, uh, as believers. Sometimes we pray um, out, of, out of just out of habit. And, um, sometimes we pray like as a transition in the message. But, but what we don't often do is pray with expectation. And we sometimes forget that on the other end of our prayer is a heavenly father who is crazy about us and who loves us and who wants to see this work of sanctification continue in our lives. And so I know that there are people in here who are doubting right now. I know that there are people in here who are questioning, um, am I really a Christian or not? Do I really know what Jesus is trying to do? So I wanna pray this. I'm gonna pray this from scripture. Um, Let's we'll just, just bow our heads, close our eyes, and I want to pray this scripture over us. I want to pray this scripture over us that we would know that, that uh, God, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. I pray that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance and your holy people and your incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength that you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God, we thank you for that name that is above every name. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead and who works in us to this day. God, we pray that you would be faithful, as your word says, to continue that transformation process and that we could continue to use our story, the story of what you've done in us to help others find their way back to you. God, I pray these things in the name of Jesus.